0: So, today we're starting uh, our new series on the extraordinary characters known as the Judges from the biblical book of Judges. Uh, To understand these characters and how their stories speak to us, we must understand their context. After all, our series is subtitled God at Work in a Broken World. So, the series is called Behind the Story God at Work in a Broken World. Um, So, how was this world broken? Let's quickly rehearse the history of the world up to the time of judges. This will only take an hour or so. Um, <laughs> the Bible's history starts with a beautiful, harmonious creation. Adam and Eve living in a garden at peace with God, and the whole of with one another and with the whole of creation. But soon they decide to go their own way. And the result was chaos. Relational, physical. And environmental chaos. Eventually, the chaos became so great that humanity's every thought was inclined to evil, and God chose to rescue Noah, who seemed to be the only good man, and his family from a an even greater chaos that wiped the world clean—the Great Flood. It didn't take long for Noah's descendants to fall back into chaos, and they decided to rival God by building up into the heavens. And God answered their unified rebellion by introducing the chaos of multiple languages. The divided world as we see it today was born. Sometime after this, God chose a man, Abram, and then his second son, Isaac, and his second son, Jacob. He he renamed Jacob Israel and sent his family to shelter in Egypt, where they grew into a great nation of people. Eventually God called them out of Egypt, showing his power over Egypt's mighty gods. But the people of Israel struggled to leave behind their Egyptian superstitions, and God disciplined them in the desert for 40 years until the unbelievers died and their children understood that the Lord is God. Then God led them into the land he'd promised them, conquering its inhabitants and gifting it to the people of Israel, and that's where the book of Judges begins. With the Israelites secure in their promised land, do they lean on God? Do they do they confuse His gift with something they're entitled to? Do they stay faithful to God who's shown His love and power, or do they indulge in the exciting sensual gods of Canaan? The book of Judges has a, a very Specific viewpoint, and the whole book is written from that perspective. We saw a, a bit about that in um, the Bible Project video. The stories chosen by the author are designed to express that viewpoint. So there are judges like Jael. There's there's twelve judges mentioned, but only six of them are given any detail, and the author chooses them to express his viewpoint and they actually explicitly describe what their perspective is in the introduction to the book in chapter 2 where they say, from time to time the Lord would choose special leaders known as judges. These judges would lead the Israelites into battle and defeat the enemies that made raids on them. In years gone by the Israelites had been faithful to the Lord but Now they were quick to be unfaithful and to refuse even to listen to these judges. The Israelites would disobey the Lord, and instead of worshipping him, they would worship other gods. When enemies made life miserable for the Israelites, the Lord would feel sorry for them. He would choose a judge and help that judge rescue Israel from its enemies. The Lord would be kind to Israel as long as that judge lived. But afterwards, the Israelites would become even more sinful than their ancestors had been. The Israelites were stubborn. They simply would not stop worshipping other gods or following the teachings of other religions. Sorry. Uh, The Lord was angry with Israel and said, The Israelites have broken the agreement I made with their ancestors. They won't obey me. So I'll stop helping them defeat their enemies. Israel still had a lot of enemies when Joshua died and I'm going to let those enemies stay. I'll use them to test Israel because I can find out if Israel will worship and obey me as their ancestors did. That's why the Lord had not let Joshua get rid of all those enemy nations right away. Um, Sorry. So, we can see from this uh, explanation that the story of judges is going to be a tragedy in multiple acts. Each act, each judge or deliverer, follows a pattern that the author has already sort of spelled out in the introduction. But they, they also want they want to make that pattern so obvious that the first judge, well, they have a little table. No, they don't. They don't have a PowerPoint or a little table. They have a story. So the first judge is basically just the pattern with the names filled in. So let's have a look at that first deliverer. His name is Othniel. And here's the entire text about Othniel. The Israelites sinned against the Lord by forgetting him and worshipping idols of Baal and Astarte, both Canaanite deities. If you've watched Stargate, you'll have seen Baal and probably Astarte as well. Um, <clears throat> this made the Lord angry. So he let Israel be defeated by King Kushan Rishatham of northern Syria, who ruled Israel eight years and made everyone pay taxes. Like oppression. O- taxes are such oppression. The Israelites, <laughs> the Israelites begged the Lord for help. Please save us from the tax man. And he chose Othniel to rescue them. Othniel was the son of Caleb's younger brother, Canaz. The spirit of the Lord took control of Othniel and he led Israel in a war against Cushan Rishathaim. The Lord gave Othniel victory and Israel was at peace until Othniel died about 40 years later. Now, since where in the 22nd century I thought we need a PowerPoint slide. So what is the pattern? Well, the first step is that the Israelites sin by worshipping Canaanite gods. God sends an oppressor to punish them for that. In this case it was uh, cushan Rishatang. Then the Israelites beg to be released from oppression. You'll notice that the... the, um, the video from the Bible Project said that the Israelites repent. They usually don't repent. They just beg God to release them from oppression. There's, not, there's, there's only one case where it mentions anything about the Israelites being sorry for anything. Most of the time they're just feeling miserable and asking God to help them. But that's a legitimate reason to pray, right? As we've already discussed. God chooses a deliverer. And then the Holy Spirit enables the Deliverer to defeat the oppressor. And finally, Israel experiences peace for some period of time, usually for the life of the Deliverer. And then it goes back to step one. As you can see from the Othniel story, it's nothing more than that pattern with the names filled in and the numbers. The Deliverers we'll be looking at all have their stories elaborated on somehow. With Gideon we hear how God chose him as well as how he defeated the oppressor. With Ehud, the first deliverer that has any story to him, we only hear how he defeated the oppressor. Another thing you'll notice as the series goes along is that the deliverers become less and less effective. That's part of the bigger pattern the author wants to show. Left to their own devices, people get worse. They don't get better. So Samson, almost at the end of the book, doesn't even try to defeat the oppressor. He, he doesn't care about the Philistines who are the oppressors. He you know wants to have sex with them, it seems, despite the constant, although he does beat a bunch of them up and kill a bunch of them, but that's just because he loses his temper. And he does all of that despite the almost constant power of the Holy Spirit giving him all he needed to do that. The author of Judges wants, just wants to emphasise this theme, how everyone did what was right in their own eyes rather than obeying God's law. And so now we come to the story of Ephod. Let's see what we can learn from this. Once more, the Israelites started disobeying the Lord, so he let them be defeated by King Eglon of Moab who had joined forces with the Ammonites and the Amalekites to attack Israel. Eglon and his army captured Jericho. Then he ruled Israel for 18 years and forced the Israelites to pay heavy taxes. The Israelites begged the Lord for help, and the Lord chose Ehud from the Benjamin tribe to rescue them. He put Ehud in charge of taking the taxes to King Eglon. Sorry, they put Ehud in charge of taking the taxes to King Eglon. But before Ehud went, he made a double-edged dagger. It was about a foot long, it says in other translations. Ehud was left-handed, so he strapped the dagger to his right thigh, where it would be hidden under his robes. Ehud and some... Ah, have I... Yep, sorry. Ehud uh, Ehud went with the other Israelites as far as the statues at Gilgal. Sorry, where are we up to here? 17. Yeah. Okay, yep. So Ehud went with the other Israelites as far as the statues at Gilgal. Then he turned back and went upstairs to the cool room where... uh, Sorry, I missed, I missed verse 17. Ehud and some other Israelites took the taxes to Eglon, who was a very fat man. As soon as they gave the taxes to Eglon, Ehud said it was time to go home. This all sounds very prosaic, doesn't it? Ehud went with the other Israelites as far as the statues at Gilgal. Then he turned back and went upstairs to the cool room it's no cool room like we think of. It's just a room where it's nice and breezy, where Eglon had his throne. Ehud said, Your Majesty, I need to talk with you in private. Eglon replied, Don't say anything yet. His officials left the room, and Eglon stood up as Ehud came closer. Yes, Ehud said. I have a message for you from God. Ehud pulled out the dagger with his left hand and shoved it so far into Eglon's stomach that even the handle was buried in his fat. Ehud left the dagger there. Then after closing and locking the doors to the room, he climbed through a window onto the porch and left. When the king's officials came back and saw that the doors were locked, they said, The king's probably inside relieving himself. They stood there waiting until they felt foolish, but Eglon never opened the doors. Finally, they unlocked the doors and found King Eglon lying dead on the floor. But by that time, Ehud had already escaped past the statues. Ehud went to the town of Syrah in the hill country of Ephraim and started blowing a signal on a trumpet. The Israelites came together and he shouted, "'Follow me!' The Lord will help us defeat the Midianites, the Moabites, rather. Midianites come later. The Israelites followed Ehud down to the Jordan Valley and they captured the places where people crossed the river on the way to Moab. They would not let anyone go across. And before the fighting was over, they killed about 10,000 Moabite warriors. Not one escaped alive. Moab was so badly defeated that it was a long time before they were strong enough to attack Israel again. And Israel was at peace for 80 years. So before we talk about Ehud's particular exploits, how does he fit into this pattern? Well, people sinned against God. Yep, that's what it says at the beginning. Tick. Mm -hmm. God sent an oppressor, Eglon of Moab, and the allies. Yep. Tick. Uh, Israel begged God for help. Tick. God chose a deliverer, Ehud. We don't actually hear anything about how God chose him, but Ehud seems prepared to do his bit. Right. So, tick. Ehud defeats the oppressor, but already... We can see the pattern breaking down because nowhere do we read of the Holy Spirit empowering Ehud in any way. Ehud says, you know, God will help us do it, but the Holy Spirit doesn't come on Ehud like we saw in Othniel's brief account. So but the in the Bible project, was he the guy that was come down from the mountains? Uh, he's the. So, in the Bible project, there were three like that. Ehud is the middle one. Um, <clears throat> the um, the interesting thing is that the because the author doesn't say anything about the Holy Spirit coming on Ehud, it seems that the author doesn't want God to be associated with Ehud's assassination. So sit, sit again. God doesn't the author of judges doesn't want God associated with Ehud's method of assassinating Eglon. So God's not claiming any credit for Ehud's brutality and treachery. But nonetheless, Ehud does defeat the oppressors and, and uh, kills 10,000 Moabites, so tick. And God delivers 80 years of peace from Moab. Chances are that the other parts of Israel were being impressed by other enemies, but this part of Israel, the southern part of Israel, is not being impressed by Moab for 80 years. So, what's the point of this pattern? It must have a point, right? Or, or the author of Judges wouldn't have been so obsessive about it. I mean, he just goes, he, it, this is already the third time that we've seen it in the book, and it appears over and over again. But, um, sorry, Uh, does it remind you of anything? Does this pattern remind you of anything? Maybe us, any and all of us, right? We sin, something bad happens as a result, we complain to God, God rescues us, we're grateful and we have, you know, we enjoy it for a bit and then we get comfortable and we sin again. That's a pattern of humanity, right? Yeah. Even kids act this way with their, with their parents, right? They're naughty, they suffer the consequences of being naughty, they complain, their parents rescue them, and then the kids abandon that rescue and go and be naughty again. 80 years, suppose, so. Yeah, for 80 years. <laughs> no, So for a nation, the cycle's quite long. For an individual, it's quite short. In fact, I would say that this cycle is built into the human heart, into the fallen human heart. We can't be rescued from it by some deliverer like Othniel Ehud or Samson. We need some deeper sort of deliverance Like the rest of the Old Testament, from the law to the prophets, the history of judges actually points to our need for a deliverer who can save us from our own nature, our own sinful nature, the final judge and deliverer. Now we'll talk more about this later, but let's just pop back to Ehud. Let's talk about the elephant in the room, Ehud's brutal and nasty methods. His dagger might have looked like this. So... (coughs) That's, that's um, a possible style and size. It seems like the author of Judges wants to emphasise the ugly details, doesn't it? Ehud's stabbing of Eglon makes for very yucky reading. And actually the translation that we read, the contemporary English version, is milder than what you'll read in the New Living Translation or the NIV or the ESV or most other translations. But even the mild CEV version is pretty ugly. How could God use such violence? Why would God choose a person like this? I think there's several things to say about this. First, the situation for Israel back then is radically different from the situation for us, the Christian church today. Israel was a nation-state, and nation-states use violence to defend themselves. You won't hear many people decrying Ukraine for killing Russian soldiers at the moment. right? And without elaborate international structures like the UN or NATO or the benevolent power of the USA to keep peace, Israel existed in an environment where war was constant and brutal and necessary to survive. Second, part of the theme of Judges is how completely captured the Israelites were by the Canaanite culture. So is it any surprise that Ehud behaves treacherously? All historical evidence from inside the Bible and from outside the Bible points to this type of treachery as classic Canaanite behaviour. God's choice of deliverers is limited to the people available and when everyone is corrupted, you're going to get a corrupted deliverer. Third, God isn't delivering the people from their sins. They didn't ask for that. They actually just want to be delivered from oppression, from the heavy taxes. By using a character like Ehud, God is showing how he can deliver the people from oppression, but also showing how temporary that shallow sort of deliverance is. As soon as Ehud dies, the people sin and war returns. (coughs) The people are asking for little and showing little obedience so they get little in return. There are lots of other things we could say about our hood, but uh, we don't have the time, so I highly recommend Daniel Block's excellent commentary on Judges and uh, Ruth. I've uh, saved copies of the commentary into Renew Public, so if you want a PDF, uh, just ask for it. So, how does this apply to us? That's the big question. We're not just doing judges for the titillation. <clears throat> the first thing to note is that if it were not for the cleansing power, well, that's turned out really weirdly. I don't know why it did that. It's That's a picture of Jesus triumphant over Satan. So, when I last saw that image, it was... Properly scaled. Now it's not. Um, the first thing to note is that if it were not for the cleansing power of the blood of Christ, which gives us new hearts, we would have hearts exactly like those of the Israelites, going through that pattern, constantly returning to sin, treachery, brutality, and chaos. But, praise be to God who has rescued us from the darkness, we do have the blood of Christ, and He and that has rescued us from this constant cycle of oppression and misery. right? So we're not in the same situation as them. Jesus, our deliverer, didn't rescue us from political, economic or physical oppression. Rather, he set our hearts free from the tyranny of sin and rebellion against God. By setting our hearts free, we can then live lives of freedom even under oppression. Ultimately, the freedom of our hearts will result in total freedom, but that total freedom will never be realised completely until all sin is destroyed, when Jesus returns again as the final judge and deliverer. Until then, we have true freedom, no matter what happens to us, because we are free from sin the truth, the way and the life has set us free. Unlike Ehud, who used such brutal, sinful means to remove the oppression of his people, this is another point, we never need to sin to rescue others. Perhaps Ehud needed to engage in that brutal assassination to deliver his people from oppression. But we don't need to do that. In fact, one of the lessons of Ehud is that God can use wickedness that he finds in brutal people to further his kingdom. Because God can use wicked people and use their wickedness, he never needs us to do wicked things. So as Christians, we can remain pure Sure, in the knowledge that God will protect us. Not from death. Death comes to us all. Not from suffering either. Suffering is one of the greatest teachers. But God can protect us and will protect us from compromise, from chaos, from fear and hate and jealousy and rage. The things that really destroy us. So God sends people like Putin, like Hitler, and he uses them to work out his will. We don't need to do wicked things because those wicked people are doing wicked things. And sometimes those wicked things that they do protect God's people or strengthen God's people. God does send suffering in our lives. Our old bodies, you see, still want to follow the pattern mapped out by the author of Judges. We have new hearts, but we have old bodies of sin. And our bodies want to follow that pattern of sin and rebellion. God gives us, for example, wonderful things here on the Gold Coast, right? We have a beautiful life. And our bodies want to worship those things instead of the one who gave them to us. And so God sends suffering and we cry out to him and our deliverer answers the cry and shows us his scars. And so instead of heading in a downward spiral like the Israelites under the judges who after their deliverance just turn back to sin we actually become more and more like Jesus. We have a new and a better way. Let's pray. Lord, we know that we still struggle with sin, that our bodies of flesh are still attached to this world and its rebellion against you. And so we appreciate the suffering and oppression that you send our way. We may not like it, but we do appreciate it. But we most especially appreciate that this oppression drives us into your arms and not away from them. We thank you for delivering us from evil. And we recognise with all our hearts that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.